Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys, this episode of Other People is brought to you by Stitcher Smart Radio. You can hear other people while on the go with Stitcher, a free news and talk mobile app available for your smartphone. And hey, when you download Stitcher to hear other people, you have a chance to win some money. Here's how it works. Downloading is quick and easy. Just find Stitcher in the App Store, download it. It's free. It takes a few seconds to do. And then when you register, enter other people in the promo code box. There should be a promo code box somewhere. Find that, enter other people, and uh, when you do that, you're then entered to win 100 bucks cash. The latest episode of the podcast will then be waiting for you in your favorites, and you'll get access to a lot of other amazing content as well, always available on demand with no syncing. That's the Stitcher app. Go download it at stitcher.com free of charge or get it in the App Store. It's available for your iPhone, your Android, or your tablet computer. And don't forget to enter the promo code other people when you register. This is an app. You can apply it. Go and get it. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listing. Just one person at just one time. Right. Okay, right. folks, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This exists on the cultural periphery. This is unfolding in the center of your cranium. Thank you for being here. Thanks for offering me your kind attention. I appreciate it. My name is Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles, California. Uh, let's start off with some tweets, and then I want to read some mail from uh, listeners, and then we'll get going with uh, the main event. So here are some tweets, some uh, Twittering from my at Brad Listy Twitter feed. Are you ready, ladies and gentlemen? Are you emotionally prepared? Here we go. Just wrote, I'm a 37-year-old family man, in all caps, then tilted my head approximately 15 degrees to the left as I imagined myself on a riding lawnmower. Felt mildly bemused while driving as I realized that the song Summer of 69 reminds me of 1984.
feel like Mick Jagger could cause extreme alarm in small children by suddenly doing his Mick Jagger dance apropos of nothing. Woke up approximately an hour and a half ago to the sound of my wife saying, quote, do not put the vitamin in your butt to my two-year-old daughter. Just experienced extreme performance anxiety while trying to leave a voicemail message. Can't believe Jiffy Lube exists. Had a dream involving Katie Holmes where I was lying in the grass in a park and then suddenly she entered the frame approximately two feet from my face. Okay, so uh, those are some tweets. There you have it. Did you enjoy that? Did you find it stimulating? I certainly hope so. Uh, I now want to read some mail from listeners. I always appreciate hearing from you guys, whether it's uh, via email, social media, whatever. And I've been getting uh, quite a bit of feedback generally over the past several months. And then uh, specifically with regard to episode 150, the last episode, uh, my conversation with Jordan Castro, the young author and poet from suburban Cleveland, Ohio. And uh, also with regard to my late night phone conversation with Megan Boyle, Mira Gonzalez, and Sam, which I offered as bonus content and uh, which you can hear via premium access. So I got a lot of feedback regarding this stuff and I figured I would share some of it. So let me read uh, some of the responses. First up, a, a guy named Shona. I think that's the name. He bills himself as a writer from a, or for GQ magazine, among other publications. He tweeted, quote, I love the podcast, but nothing about the interviews with these, quote, alt-lit guys motivates me to read their chapbooks. And then uh, a listener named Lucy emailed the following, quote, I'm a big fan of your podcast. I listen to every episode at work, and it always makes a boring day a lot more interesting. I think it's really cool that you've interviewed folks like Jordan and Mira and that you have an appreciation for internet writers and whatever alt-lit is and that you treat, quote, us with the same respect and intrigue that you do your more established guests. Just wanted to say thank you for that. And then uh, a listener named Max writes, uh, quote, while I think everyone should sign up for other people premium, I think listening to Mira Gonzalez talk about cyber sex only appeals to the young heterosexual male in me and not so much to the young lover of literature. Uh, I'm sure that wasn't the entirety of your conversation with the quote stooges, but it was the teaser. So listy listeners, AKA the enlisted, <laughs> have nothing else to go off of, end quote. And then Max goes on to say, uh, quote, Jordan Castro follows in the Sam Pink tradition of unengaged, ungrateful to be on your show, mumbling, inarticulate, narcissistic slackers whose only saving grace may be that they catch a little of Tao Lin's alt-lit shadow. And uh, Max then concludes, quote, the enlisted 
Need more clarity on your stance about drugs, Brad? People don't talk so much about something they don't mind or care about. I think if you really want to convey your libertarian worldview, preach to the sober off of your show. Don't pander to druggies on your show. Don't pander to druggies in general. They only care about one thing, drugs. They don't even care about your opinion of them. It's sad. End quote. So, uh, interesting responses. Thanks to everybody for weighing in. Sorry if I didn't get to yours. Uh, and if you're out there and you're listening and you ever do want to send word, you can email me at letters at otherpeoplepod.com. And then you can also tweet at me at Brad Listy or at otherpeoplepod. So, uh, just to respond quickly, I don't want to take up too much time here, but I will say, uh, that I find the vitriol that I seem to hear regarding alt-lit writers or, uh, quote, internet writers to be interesting. And obviously everyone's entitled uh, to his or her own opinion. That's fine with me. You know, that's the way it goes. That's the nature of it. And uh, the way I look at it, uh, personally, I'm interested in writers at every stage of the process. That's what this show is. Uh, I'm not interested in only talking to like 50-year-old writers with tenure-track professorships at elite universities who were published by uh, Knopf or whatever. I mean, some of that's great, but that's not all that I'm interested in. And if you've listened to this show uh, for any amount of time, then you know that uh, in addition to that, I'm interested in talking with indie authors. I'm interested in talking to authors on micro presses. Uh, that's the world we live in now. And the truth is that there's a ton of interesting work being done on the periphery. And, uh, and I'll tell you, you know, I think there's some snobbishness in publishing and that's not necessarily, um, uh, a, a, you know, value judgment on the, the letters that I received. I'm just saying broadly that there is some snobbishness in this world. And fortunately, I don't think that it predominates uh, there. You know, I'm sort of an optimist in that regard. I think most writers and people in publishing are uncommonly decent at heart. I really do with an, uh, you know, an unusual sensitivity for the little guy or whatever you want to call it. But there are, uh, you know, in this world, some cultural elitists, uh, both, you know, you know, on the publishing side and the executive side, but also among writers themselves. I think there are some, uh, you know, some pretentious people who exist in this world who look down their nose at anyone who didn't go to private school uh, or some Tony liberal arts college or who haven't published in Harper's magazine and the Paris review and whose books aren't uh, published by a major New York house. And that's not what this show is. And that's not who I am. And I think uh, there's a lot of great work being published by New York publishers, obviously. And I don't think there's anything inherently evil about that. I have people uh, from big presses on this show all the time. And I mean, my, I mean, shit, my novel was published by Simon and Schuster. So who am I to talk? But I also know that the ground is changing under our feet and that the internet and digital technology uh, are obviously playing a huge role in that. And to me, that's exciting. You know, like these are exciting times in a lot of ways. It may be, you know, making things difficult as far as earning a living goes. It may be creating a flood in terms of people publishing and how many books there are and how many writers there are. But it allows for enormous experimentation and the publication of work that likely wouldn't find a home within a more traditional system. It empowers writers. 
So not only uh, is this interesting and exciting to me, uh, things like alt-lit and internet literature or whatever you want to call it, uh, you know, I feel like it's the, it's the, the world we live in. I think it's absurd to not have these voices on my show. Because if you're not catching what's happening online and with these small presses on the periphery, I think you're missing something critical about this moment in publishing and in literary history. Plus, uh, as I've said before, and, and this is my final thought here, uh, I love the lack of pretense at work in a lot of these books and in this online culture because I, I just, I really hate <laughs> uh, pretense and literary pretense. I'm so bored by it. You know, it's just, it's, it's awful. And I'm, I'm bored by uh, quote-unquote pretty language and books that seem to conform to a kind of like stock bourgeois sensibility. I, I don't know how to put it, but you know what I'm saying? And, and I think there's a big part of me that's a sucker for the avant-garde. I like to know where the experiments are happening. And if that means I have somebody on here as a guest who's a quote-unquote mistake, fine. I'd rather take that risk. I like that bleeding edge. And that, that's where I feel most naturally drawn to creatively, increasingly. And uh, I especially like it when people seem to be having fun making books and making art. You know, they're making it because they love to do it. It's fun. There's joy in it. And they're also doing it because they really have something they need to say. And not just because uh, they want to get famous or make a lot of money or see the, you know, see their face on the back of a book in Barnes and Noble. You know, not that those things are inherently bad, but you know what I mean? So hopefully that explains it. And again, I'm just glad you guys are listening and responding. I really do appreciate hearing back. Uh, I think it's a good conversation to have. Okay. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest today is Leslie Arfin. I'm really excited to have her here. Uh, most recently and most notably, she was a writer on the first two seasons of the hit television show Girls, the uh, Lena Dunham juggernaut on HBO. And back in 2007, Leslie published a book called Dear Diary with Vice Books and MTV Press. Uh, it was an outgrowth of a popular column that she did for Vice Magazine. And I read this book recently as part of my year of uh, like feminist reading. And you're going to hear me talk about this very thing with Leslie in just a moment. But before we get there, I just want to say 
that, you know, calling it feminist reading, that might be too strong of a word. I don't want to sound too precious here or too uh, academic or highfalutin. Uh, like, how about just female reading? Books by women that deal with the female experience. And, uh, you know, I think I've even mentioned this before on the show, but the reason I'm trying to do this in 2013 uh, is because I am a, I'm a guy, I'm a man, and I'm now the father to a young girl, a, uh, a young girl child. <laughs> and it has occurred to me recently that I haven't really read as much as I probably should from women. And so I'm trying to address that, and uh, I'm trying to, I, I guess, be responsible and to get a better understanding. So I had, you know, to that to that effect, I had Kate Zambrino on this program not too long ago. I read her book, Heroines, uh, which is wonderful. And then I read Dear Diary by uh, Leslie Arfin, today's guest, as a continuation of this project. And I also watched the entire first season of Girls in like one big binge. One big estrogenic binge. And I just finished it last night. Uh, so what am I saying? I'm trying to understand. I'm trying to understand what it means to have a vagina. I really am in a good way, in a sincere way, in a, uh, non-ironic way. Okay. So let's get to it. This is my conversation with the lovely and talented Leslie Arfin and her book once again is called Dear Diary. Okay, so welcome. Thank you. It's good to have you here. I'm glad to be here. And I should ask, I should tell you just as like a preface, like the reason, uh, or I guess one of the big reasons why I wanted to talk to you is that I'm sort of undertaking this project uh, because I have a young daughter. And it started with, um, I guess like late last year, I started to realize that I don't really know very much about what it is to be a female <laughs> and I'm, I'm now raising one mm -hmm. and I would see like on my Twitter feed or whatever, all this, uh, or, or I'd read, read essays or like, you know, click links and there would be these big essays about feminism and feminist literature and what it's like to, you know, mm -hmm. all that stuff's out there. Mm -hmm. And I would sort of, I guess, let it slide by. And then I started to think to myself, well, wait a minute, I should check this out. I mean, it's not just for women. And then I would read it and I would be sort of taken aback. Uh, or just like surprised or like it would make me feel a little panicky because I'm thinking to myself, I don't know nearly as much as I thought I did. Mm -hmm. So I, I, you know, I've been reading like, f like classic feminist literature of a more like academic variety, but I picked up your book, <laughs> uh, which I think also, um, shines a light, you know, it's been really instructive to me anyway. So that's sort of a long winded way of saying, you know, or of explaining why I have you here and why I'm so glad to get to talk to you. Wait, what surprised you about feminism? Just curious. Well, I mean, there's just so much of it that I don't know. And like, I mean, I can give you like little examples. Like there's a book that I was reading by Kate Zambrino, who was just on this show. And she's talking about like the wives of the modernists. So mm -hmm. it's like, you know, um, Zelda Fitzgerald, for instance, or the wife of T.S. Eliot. And I'm forgetting her name, like mm -hmm. right off the top of my head. But I didn't realize how... Um, put upon they were and how difficult it was for them. Mm. And I didn't realize how women were often institutionalized when they tried to kind of like break gender barriers down. And yeah, I don't know, all that stuff sort of just like shocks me a little bit. And so I think as a dad, I'm like, Oh shit. Like I just really want to make sure 
that I'm doing my homework a little bit. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't mean to sound too precious about it, but it's been, um, you know, it's been instructive. And then I think like with the, the whole girls phenomenon, yeah. You know, I think that's a part of it in television where the, you guys are doing stuff on TV with respect to the female experience that hasn't quite been done before. Mm -hmm. You think so? Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah. So I don't know. I, I mean, I think I'd like to hear, I guess I'd like to hear you talk about that, like first, like when you guys sit down to write that show, you know, like right. what are like the pre-conversations like? How did it uh, originate? Like, can you just describe a little bit about how explicitly you guys think about that stuff or talk about that stuff in conceptualizing the mm -hmm. character arcs and the narrative arcs for the show? Well, I will say that it is very much Lena's show. And so we never, we don't go in, we never went into the room like, okay, guys, we really need to address um, this feminist a feminist agenda or it's really important that lena gets naked so she can show what real bodies are like that that was never said i was gonna i was gonna say because that stuff gets talked about so much it's almost like a it's almost like a uh like a weekly occurrence at this point i know, you know? that's lena's choice as an artist and whatever reason she has but behind doing that whether it's for political or personal or both are her reasons and she doesn't explain them to us and she doesn't need to. I mean, I think that it's one person's way of, um, you know, dealing with their relationship to their body would be exposing themselves. And I mean, it's, like regard, I mean, it's brave. Totally. Super brave. Well, it's kind of like, you know, she beat everyone to the punchline in a way like she has a real body. She's looks, she's beautiful and she actually looks like she's a pretty normal average body. I mean, pretty much what most girls look like. Well, and, and it's delicate to talk about, but um, you know, what we're used to in our popular cinema and television culture is a specific kind of body. Mm -hmm. Well, just like really, fucking sick bodies yeah yeah exactly <laughs> really like airbrushed ones. tan <laughs> right. you know like tall string beanie people mm -hmm. with like you know well-defined muscles and all this stuff and so mm -hmm. you know i think that this has shocked some people there's been weird backlash uh even when i watch it i mean mm -hmm. I, I it is it's bracing all of a sudden because i'm just not used to seeing it mm -hmm. and so i mean same with me right and so i think like it's having an effect on the culture and i think it's creating healthy conversations even, sure. if, even if they're sometimes a little bit yeah. weird and you know hostile or whatever totally i mean look if people feel grossed out then feel grossed out you know great like there's not many opportunities for people to talk about feeling uncomfortable people don't uh <sighs> there's not many tv shows that make people feel uncomfortable in the way that girls makes people feel uncomfortable. So awesome. Great. Feel weird. Feel angry. Feel disgusted. Feel inspired. Um, I think that it's sort of, you know, um, there's been a lot of 
anti-hero shows where, you know, Breaking Bad, Sopranos, Mad Men, they're like these sociopathic assholes who are also the heroes. And then I feel like 2012 was sort of the year of the girl. And I mean, that's that's the thing. I've been feel like I said late last year, which was maybe a culmination, but I feel like it's been building. Like there's yeah. something happening in the culture. Um, and then, of course, like I'm personalizing it with my own like parenthood experience. But it definitely feels like something's been out there in the yeah. ether. Yeah. You know? It's great. I mean, Mindy's show, Mindy Kaling's show is amazing. And like she is super inspiring to me. And um, I love New Girl. I love Enlightened. I think Enlightened is amazing. Sometimes Enlightened makes me feel... Is that the Laura Dern show? It is a Laura Dern yeah, show yeah, on yeah. HBO. The Enlightened actually makes me feel a lot more uncomfortable than Girls does. I think probably because I really identify with girls and I see a lot of myself in there or I know a lot of people. I've, I've had that experience. But Laura Dern's character in Enlightened is like what I fear I would be. And I do know people like that. And I identify with her and that scares me yeah well i think that's the thing about it is that when we read something or watch something on television and you know i guess both experiences are really intimate there's something like that's more almost every day about television because i think people watch more television than they read and it's right. like the living room experience and when suddenly you have and you're, you're confronted in your living room on mm -hmm. your flat screen with like this real stuff it can be like you know yeah, know. it's like an un it's a it's a it's a special kind of shock or something. Yeah, yeah, it's it's entertaining. But it's, it's what TV. the it's what the medium is. You know, I think it's what the medium should do. It doesn't do it enough, right? You know, right. So um, you say that it's Lena's show, and obviously that's the case. But conceptually, uh, from a writer standpoint. Can you talk a little bit about the writer's room and how the episodes are conceived? Like she comes in and she says, what? Like, how does it happen? Um, I worked on season one and season two. I'm actually not on season three. Um, the two, how it happens is Season one was a little bit different, I think, because it was my first time writing on a TV show. It was Lena's first time writing on a TV show. It was Sarah Hayward's first time. So Was it all females? No, no. We had um, Dan Sterling in the first season who was a co-EP or some consulting, whatever. I don't know what his title was. And Bruce Eric Kaplan, who's a producer, Jenny Connor, um, and Deb Schoenman all writers and then second season it was the same crew except Dan left he went to run the office and uh, Murray Miller came in and Steve Rubenstein who had been a writer's assistant came on as a staff writer so we mixed it up a little bit but you know we all um, and I'd say one thing that um, Jenny Connor does that she learned from Judd that we did in our writer's room is that there's no such thing as a bad pitch. We talk about ideas. We talk about things art, some of the characters might do, whether it's one of them chokes on a piece of gum or one of them gets a divorce, you know, really big things to really small things. And a bad pitch or an unfunny pitch can sometimes lead to something really funny, something really good. Um, and we, 
we we plan a lot and we how how much of it is personal like how much of it is really drawn from your own life Lena changes a lot of things at the last minute that's that I'm not around for because she does it on set with the producers I'm not a producer so I'm not there um I think a lot of it is personal if, if it's not directly personal about Lena's life it's something or somebody that she knows and our stories come from a personal place. I mean, I think that's true in all writers rooms yeah, or, most of the time. or in my experience in, in writers rooms. I, I did work on a sketch comedy show once, which was not about anything personal at all. And I'm not a sketch writer and that job didn't last very long. It was on Portlandia, but it was a great learning experience. Cause I was just like, this isn't, this isn't one of my strengths. Like, I like writing about personal things or and having that connection and you're very good at it. Thank you. That's yeah. that makes me feel really good. No, I mean and like, you know, we'll kind of mix it up. We'll keep talking about girls, we'll talk about the writing that you do, the book, but there's something like extremely effortlessly conversational about your writing style. And it, I think it probably tricks me into thinking that it comes more easily than it actually does. Like Ugh. Does it, is it? Do you struggle to get that to get it to read that conversationally and simply, or do you? Are you one of those writers who like writes in like these bursts, where it just sort of shoots out of you? And you know, do you know what I'm saying? Like totally. I'm, it's it's there. There's two different answers. One is no. It's not hard for me to write conversationally. It's just my tone. It's my style. I've been doing it for a long time. I found my voice. I think really early on in writing. And I've been, I've put in those 10,000 hours in terms of style and voice, I think. But no, I'm not the most prolific writer. It is very hard for me to sit down and start working and continue to work and finish something. I mean, it's brutal. It's brutal. That makes me feel so much better. I like hearing that. (laughs) Everybody is like that. I remember having a conversation with Lena a long time ago and she is very prolific. She writes very fast and she writes a lot. And I'm like, well, I don't understand. Do you not sleep? Like, how do you write so much? And and she's kind of like, I think she's one of those people who writes in bursts because she doesn't. She's like, no one is ever writing as much as they say they are. I mean, I went to graduate. I got my MFA and went to graduate school with I think writers who never wrote, you know, like, mm. and yet would, where'd be, you go? Uh, USC. Oh, and, cool. And I think like, and then they would bemoan the fact that they weren't like getting a deal. It was the weirdest <laughs> thing. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, yes. So uh, it's, it's a weird, like it's a weird pattern of denial that can happen. It's hard. It's hard. I, I get, um, emails or tweets or whatever from young writers all the time how can I be a writer? I want to be a writer. How can I get published? What's your advice? And my advice, not to sound like a dick, because I remember hearing like, you know, Tim O'Brien say this a million years ago, but my my advice is to not be a writer. There's too many. It's not, I wouldn't choose it. I, 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 I wish I had another talent. Me too. It's really hard. It's, it's hard as hell. Yeah. You've had good success. I mean, comparatively. I mean, I try. I think that if it was, if it wasn't writing, it would be something else. You know, success and fame is completely separate from what I do. And that 
is my Achilles heel in a lot of ways. And I want to, I want people to pay attention to me for whatever childhood trauma (laughs) I went through. And so I work really hard at that. And it just happens to be, writing happens to be the medium in which I try to make that happen. Try to make what happen? Like the success? Success, yeah. Recognition? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like it's, you know, it's something that doesn't get talked about maybe as much as it should. But everyone out there who's writing with the hope of finding an audience is nursing some hope of being famous. Sure, yeah. You know, you want to be heard. And then there's also the question of like the hole that it's that you're trying to fill with that, like the approval hole. Mm -hmm. You know, like, where does that come from? Our parents. You think so? Our moms. Maybe. I mean, I felt like I was really maybe even over-nurtured. I had like a Mm. really sweet, sweet mom. Right, me too. Yeah. Very supportive. Yes. So you want to... Keep getting more of that? (laughs) Well, you want to give back to them. You, You want them to continue to love you. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I'm I'm no therapist. And it doesn't matter. I mean, I think success and recognition is a little... It's, it's different from fame. Now, I don't... I don't think that I'd be able to handle fame, per se. It would be a... Dra- I think it's... I mean, there are upsides. Right. But it seems awful. Like for me to be, to go out into public and to not be able to just do your thing without people looking at you and asking you, would be a nightmare. Totally. Cause we're writers and we feel awkward. I don't like talking to adults. I don't even like talking to <laughs> you're waiters. Like, you're like, I'm having a horrible time talking to you right now. You're not. <laughs> <laughs> you're like the same age as me. I think I'm 37. I don't know. I'm 33. I'll be 34 next week. Right, right, right. So you're... I'm a young 37. Though. Yeah. I feel like I'm emotionally stunted. I feel like I'm... I, you know, I don't feel... I don't know what age I feel like. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like, I don't look at myself and go, oh my God, I'm almost 40. I feel almost 40. I think I feel like I have so much to learn. You're, you feel like a young 37? Yes. I mean, I, I think I feel my age. Yeah. Finally, I think in my thirties, when I turned thirty, I started to feel, yeah, this this feels right. I am thirty. Right. I get it. Maybe eventually I'll get there. I don't know. Like I just feel like sort of young or something. Like I need to do more. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I don't know what else you do. What do you do? This and I you run do this podcast? the nervous. Yeah, I mean the nervous breakdown, the publishing thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, trying to write. You books. had a lot of links on the email. You have. There's all sorts of things going on, but it's like you know, parenthood, fatherhood. It reconfigures everything. You know? I mean, absolutely. That's a big job. It's a huge job. I just feel, I feel that weight. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? So I feel like, in that sense, I feel like 37. Mm-hmm. You know, every time I look at my daughter, I feel like I'm 37. But then. Uh, I think, like, in terms of my understanding of where I fit in exactly career-wise in the grand scheme of things in the world, mm-hmm. I feel younger. Mm-hmm. You know? Well, I, I'm doing a podcast, for God's sakes. <laughs> yeah, but, like, a lot of, I mean... We're a type. I think we're a type. You know, like, there are people who are just sitting there, and they get some microphones, and right. all of a sudden, I've done, like, 150 of them, you know? It's great. It is. Yeah. I love it. I don't think it's like an immature thing. It's radio. It's it's uh, media broadcasting communication. I mean, yeah. No, I mean it's like that's the thing about it is that it's unedited, um, 
unregulated mm-hmm. radium. It's yeah, free. And it's, it's great. Awesome. I love it. You know, and, and it's like I, what I always say, because people sometimes still don't know what a podcast is, is it's like being able to DVR radio. Totally. You know? So yeah. I love it. I mean, that's how I got into it. I was a fan of them before I started one. So That's really cool. So anyhow, um, but back to you. Th- you said you started to feel your age when you turned 30. Yeah, I think so. Even though I, I don't, I'm not sure I acted my age. Mm. Um, I really like being in my 30s. Being in my 20s was, uh, it was a lot of fun, but there was also a lot of drama and turmoil and questioning and anxiety and great things. But, um, it's hard. The 20, your twenties are hard, Yeah, you know, because especially, I mean, I think about these, you know, kind of like a generation behind us, the, the people who came out of college into this Mm -hmm. world and this economy, holy shit. Like that's, you know, that makes it doubly hard. It's been very rocky time for, I think a lot of people. And yeah, you know, I remember when I came out of school and of course I did not partake in this because I was a writer and wasn't participating, but that was like the the tech boom of mm-hmm. the late 90s. Mm-hmm. And I have friends who literally walked out of college, got a job at some technology company, yeah. and within a year and a half of being out of school were worth seven figures in stock options. Wow. Like just had that crazy ride. So it was easy to think like, oh, this is just how it works, you know? Yeah. And, and then, no, it's not the case, you know? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I don't know that many younger 20 year olds anymore um i'm sure it's really hard for them i don't know i I don't care (laughs) (laughs) i'm too (laughs) self-absorbed well i talked to you know i talked to some younger writers on the show just because um i don't know i'm fascinated with writers at every stage yeah you know and i'm fascinated with the writers who are like you know, 65 and towards the end of their career and somebody who's like 20 and just starting out. I think it's interesting. So, yeah, no, it is. Um, so anyway, you're from Long Island. I am. Okay. So let's talk about childhood growing up. You, you go through this in, uh, dear diary, but tell us a little bit about your youth. Um, well, I was very bad at school. Um, I didn't get good grades. I really enjoyed reading. That was probably my strongest skill. I still think it's my strongest skill. How much do you read? I love reading. I'm not, I read uh, like a couple books a month. I mean, I'm not the fastest reader, only because I usually don't want a book to end if I really like it. So I'll really take my time with it. Right. But that's my favorite thing to do in the whole world is read. So that I was good at. Everything else, I was bored. And it's not because I was too smart that I was so bored. It's that, like, I just, I I was bored because it, the shit was boring and I didn't get it. It made me feel stupid, you know? And, and that's it's how ref- the public school system is. It's, it's like. It's refreshing to hear you say that because I feel like. When I read interviews or I see interviews, especially with artists, they often talk about how bored they were with school mm-hmm. as like a, it's like code for I was smarter than school. <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? No. Uh, I, to- I totally know what you're saying. That was not the case for me. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I, 
couldn't keep up with the rest of the students. I just wasn't as quick. Things were harder for me to grasp, um, especially in math and science. And I'd say I just thought history was really boring. Social studies is actually what we called it. Yeah, we did. I remember that. Fucking vocab words are really boring. I mean, now I'm into it. I, I love learning vocab words now. But um, I don't know. I know and, and I was in lower level classes and I really liked – I mean, I wouldn't go as far as to say I was the class clown. But because I don't know if I was that starved for attention. I did know – some class clowns and they were awesome and I was so happy when they were in my class but I definitely like to make people laugh and if that came at the cost of getting in trouble it didn't matter to me so talking out acting out like physical comedy or just like smart oh, mouth smart mouth yeah, not yeah. physical comedy okay I didn't know if you were like doing pratfalls or... <laughs> <laughs> no but there were some kids who did and they ruled right um yeah just being obnoxious, um, and that was pretty much, you know, in grade school, I, it's weird. I was just taught, I never talk about elementary school, and I just talked about it the other day with my therapist. I, uh, I remember in kindergarten, we had to say the Pledge of Allegiance and put our hands over our hearts, and then we sang My Country Tis of Thee. And we didn't have to have our hand over our hearts during that song. So for me, I thought it meant like free reign to party. And I would run around and I would start dancing with everybody. And nobody else was moving. Nobody else was dancing. But I was like playing air guitar. I was, and, and I remember this. And I was so young. This is like the only, one of the only things I remember from elementary school. But um, I thought that was really funny that I used to do that. <laughs> I don't know. And then in middle school, I had a hard time socially and it didn't. Who doesn't have a hard time socially? Totally. Was it, were you like especially, do you have an especially difficult time or? I did have a really difficult time, especially difficult time, I think. Um, with friends and being, having my parents have to come into school and being in lower level classes didn't help my self-esteem and I was really popular for a minute and then I was like had no friends at all and oh. people were like awful to me. I mean, I was one of those kids, yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then things turned around and I met other kids and I in high school I found drugs and that made I mean, it made everything better or worse, depending on how you look at it. Which drugs? I guess to begin with, well, I smoked pot and maybe drank or maybe tripped out in eighth grade. And then in ninth and 10th grade, I sort of fell into a group of kids who were really straight edge. I wasn't, but during that time I didn't really experiment with anything. And then I went, and then after I'd say a l summer of 10th grade, beginning of 11th grade, I just went nuts. I did everything. I mean, in school, out of school, everything. 
If you ask me something specifically, I'll tell you yes or no. Do you drop acid in high school? Totally. <laughs> oh my god! How did you do? I ask people this whenever they, you know, it comes up, and I'm always like, "How did you do it?" I guess when you're that young and you don't know what you're doing, you just do it. And yeah, I mean, I just feel like that would be. You end up leaving. I mean, really, we just would end up cutting school because okay. it was too freaky yeah. to be in class. But I remember. Do you remember when people used to do special K? Kind of, yeah. I, well, that was really big when I was in high school. Okay. And when, that's the one that makes people like crawl around on the ground. <laughs> I, I don't know. Um, I'm sure it can make you do that. It's okay. It's a animal tranquilizer. It, <laughs> it's a disassociative drug. It's really weird. We did it all the time. I did that in high school all the time. And that made things really weird <laughs> but really fun i don't know yeah well i mean it's you know that's the thing about it i feel like for people who do wind up experimenting with drugs in their adolescence mm -hmm. like for me it was a little later i was in like my freshman year of college and as most people but there you know i have friends and it's interesting because one of my buddies from new york city who was raised you know i was raised in indiana and in mm -hmm. milwaukee so I think when you're, you have proximity to like Manhattan mm -hmm. and you have proximity to these more cosmopolitan places, it's a little bit different. Yeah. Maybe. Kids grow up a little faster. Yeah. They're exposed to some dark shit right. earlier on. I mean, my friends who grew up in Manhattan, they, their stories are 10 times crazier than mine. And I thought mine were crazy just in the suburbs. No. And it's like, that's exactly right. Like my buddy who is to this day. One of the sweetest people you would ever meet. Soft-spoken, gentle, wonderful artist, all this stuff. And he got to college and he was done. Mm -hmm. And he's mm -hmm. like, yeah, you know, like I committed arson in ninth grade. And <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I was like, what? Yeah. And I hadn't, you would never know by talking to him. But like for me, I was one of like the Midwestern kid suddenly at school, like let out of his cage. Yeah. And I had, you have like this, I, you know, I had like a year and a half, two year experience of like intense experimentation or whatever. And I look back on that jokingly and like refer to it as like my Vietnam mm -hmm. because like, you know, I had a very easy road, but mm -hmm. that was the most intense period of life. And the people that I was with, there's like a weird kind of like bond. Like mm -hmm. you were in the trenches with them. Like, do you <laughs> feel that way about you? Totally. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't really talk to the people who I used to get really fucked up with anymore. Some, there's a couple that I do and yeah, they know me and I, we were in the trenches together, but for the most part, were you friends with them before you started doing that? Like, is that what separates it or is it just, they were just better friends while you were in the trenches? The reason why we're not friends anymore. No, I'm saying like the people that you do still keep in touch with. Is there something um, that differentiates them from the people that you don't t keep in touch with? Uh, I, I think I just probably like them better. <laughs> <laughs> I like them as much on drugs, off of drugs as I did on drugs. Right. You know, that's probably the difference. The other people, it's like, oh my God, when you're sober, you're horrible. <laughs> <laughs> We're like, really you're such boring. an asshole. <laughs> yeah. um, no, I do have my old best friend from junior high and high school who I used to party with all the time, but she has two kids now and she's married and she's a teacher and she lives in Brooklyn and our lives are just really different. And for whatever reason, we're, we don't really talk that much. Um, I don't know. Hmm. I mean, you know, I'm one of the things that strikes me about your writing too, uh, and about dear diary is like the power of your recall. 
And I know you have the diaries to work right. from. So, yeah. you know, you journaled extensively throughout your childhood, mm-hmm. like daily. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you have all that to go back through in mind. But um, do you have a powerful memory of your youth? With I mean, it's such an intense experience to be adolescent for you, I mm-hmm. guess, you know, and it is for everybody. But you seem to have like such a grasp of detail to the point that when I was reading it, like the starter jackets. Oh my god! Like the details. <laughs> I'm like, oh my god! I forgot all about. I forgot all about it because yeah. I don't really have that great of a memory. Mm-hmm. But this, it just triggered so much for me because we grew up in essentially the same time. Right. You know. Yeah, I don't know if it. I think um, I'd like to say, oh, that comes from you know the observant writer. Really, I think it comes from, for me, um, just obsession of people, places, and things. And the reason why I remember the guys in seventh grade who wore starter jackets to the ice skating rink and wore Dracar cologne. I used to wear Dracar. Totally. In seventh grade. (laughs) But I remember that smell, first of all, brings back very visceral memories. Does it still exist? Totally. I'm sure. yeah, Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But... The reason why I remember all these like minute details is because I was obsessed with one of those boys, you know, and I was obsessed with being involved and being included. And so I so I remember a a lot of details, especially if it was like a really uncomfortable moment. It's like a reference point. I remember one time I was on ecstasy leaving a rave and I was tripping out and we used to wear really puffy. This was like 1997 or 96 or something. Do you remember when like really puffy polo jackets were in? Kind of, yeah. It's kind of an East Coast thing, but we were really into like polo sport and Ralph Lauren and all that. So I had a... Like the the brightly colored ones? mm -hmm. Yeah, 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 yeah. like I had a big puffy green bubble coat. And I was on like acid and ecstasy and the zipper got stuck in my coat. And I remember freaking out and just being like, I will, I am never going to get out of this coat. (laughs) I don't mean to laugh. No, it's so funny. (laughs) And I I had no idea how I was going to get out of the coat. There was no way. And did you start, I'm thinking like straight jacket thoughts now. Like, were you thinking that? I did start to panic at one point. My friends helped me, but and it wasn't that bad. It wasn't like, oh, my God, you know, I'm the orange juice that's tipping over forever. <laughs> like that. It was that's not what was happening. It was just a moment. Right. But it's this reference point I have of like, be careful when you zipper your coat <laughs> because you'll get stuck in it. Right. And you'll have a panic attack. <laughs> <laughs> Has it ever happened since? Do you ever do you, I guess you flash back whenever your zipper gets stuck? I know stuck. how to fix it now. <laughs> right. I, you know. Yeah. <laughs> It does get stuck. Yeah. I know how to fix it. <laughs> um, so take me like through, I, I, you know, as briefly or expansively as you want to get about this. But eventually uh, the other shoe dropped. You know, you like at what point did you decide to stop doing drugs? Like how did it how did it end for you? <laughs> you know, I was 23. I had tried a couple of times to get sober. It wasn't my heart wasn't really in it, but I had developed a tolerance that was for heroin that was unmanageable at a certain point. And so I thought, oh, well, if I go to detox, I'll lower my tolerance and I was just kind of manipulating, trying to manipulate the drug and trying to control the drug when 
physical I mean I I had no control over it it's very hard I I think especially with opiates in general for most people I mean I, I can't speak for everybody and some people just don't have a problem but physically I think opiates are are very very addictive um and this wasn't like I would pills weren't this wasn't the, the era of pills. Nobody was taking pills. That's just like the last ten years, right? It feels like there's been this huge upsurge, you know, uptick in that. Yeah, it, it's because it's like a loophole. It feels like a loophole. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, so I was young. I it just after a while, I didn't. I just I didn't want to do it anymore. I didn't like the person who I was. Um, the lie wasn't working anymore, and I kind of knew it, and I couldn't stop, even though I wanted to. And ultimately, I was just like, okay, I need help stopping. And it was not easy to say, and it was not easy to do, and I was young, and it's it was 10 years ago. And... It's hard to believe that, oh, well, it's 10 years ago, you know, I was young and that was then, this is now, and maybe I'd be able to have more control over a drink now or whatever. But, um, I don't know. It doesn't really, it's not, I, I don't really care to do that at this point in time, but I, I will tell you that it's in a lot of ways it's harder to stay sober now than it was when I was first getting sober because it's so easy now. And it's so easy that I'm like, ah, you know, I can always go back to the program. Who cares? I'm not going to die. Right. You know, but you know, it's a slip. It's dangerous. I don't know. Oh my God. Totally. I mean, I, I, I don't know. I, I just have no idea what would happen. And I have a feeling that like, I'm just not, the best version of myself when I'm under the influence of anything. Like, uh, I don't think it makes me funnier to be fucked up. I don't think it makes me nicer or more interesting. And I want everybody to like me. <laughs> so I don't want to do anything that would potentially ruin that. <laughs> right. Right. You know? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's like, that's so interesting because yeah, I have I have friend I have friends who've gone into rehab like some some of whom recently, um, and have come out of it and it's like th- that the navigating that thought process of like well I, w- I was in rehab for X pill or X whatever, mm-hmm. but like maybe I could have a glass of wine like mm-hmm. that's you know it's like such a weird like terrain totally you know? I mean right some people can do that. And that's awesome. And maybe I can be one of those people too, but it seems, it seems dangerous to try to find out. (laughs) It seems dangerous to try to find out. And I actually like, I don't know. I really like the spiritual path that I'm on. It's a lot more fulfilling to me than like having a glass of wine. Like I don't really like the taste of alcohol or at least the last time I was drinking. I remember not really liking the taste. Right. So, yeah, I don't know. It's just, it's just not um, 
thank God it's just not something that I'm very like interested in or obsessed with right now. Now that's not to say I'm not addicted to other things like or obsessed with other things that can potentially, you know, make me at worst a less interesting person. Like what, gambling? Like- no, no, no. <laughs> like fame. Yeah. You know, or because okay, like like even something like Twitter fame or computer fame can be addictive. You know what I'm saying? Like, I don't want computer fame. You want? Like- <laughs> <laughs> I want real fame. No, no, no. It's. I could say I don't care how many Twitter followers I have and I don't care how many Instagram followers I have, but I check that shit every day. That's what I mean. It's like the constant yeah. observation because I'm, I'm sitting here looking at like podcast analytics and I'm like, what mm-hmm. the fuck am I doing? Like, yeah. But it's every day and it at, at some point – and it's not just one time a day either, which I should admit. <laughs> oh, of course not. You know, but you're constantly checking your Twitter feed and I think that's like a very – it's almost like the air we breathe at this point. It's a common experience for everyone at any level almost, you know? Right. Yeah, I know. So um, how do you how do you manage that? Like how do you find yourself operating against those tendencies, you know, when it comes to fame or whatever? You know, do you have like a strategy or is there something you do or tell yourself? Like do you, do you notice it? You know what I'm saying? Like, Yeah, for sure. I mean, look, fame is wrapped up in a lot of things that isn't really about fame. You know, it's about wanting to be popular. It's about wanting to be well-liked. It's about wanting people, wanting validation from a certain kind of person or the right kind of people that I'm good enough. And wanting the cachet of cool to have that. And you have that, right? But it's never enough. Right. And and, and, And that's, what if I lose it? Right. Then who am I? You know, I'm not writing on the third season of Girls. Why not? But, May I ask? Like, Lena didn't hire me back. I mean, she wants to write more of the show herself. And she has really amazing producers. She Paul Sims, who created News Radio, is now an EP on the show. I mean, he's like a hero of mine. Jenny Connors, a genius. Judd. Right. She got um, she's been like she's really good mm-hmm. and take nothing away from her but she got some amazing breaks. I mean goodness gracious. Like yeah. just the by by virtue of like the people who kind of like rallied to her cause like Yeah. I mean at her at her age she's what 24 years old. It's like goodness. She's a really hard worker. I mean she made a movie and she and she made a movie and she produced and wrote and starred and directed it, it and that's a lot of work and I re- the movie's great. I really mm. like the movie. Right. So it's like on one hand, oh my God, that chick got so many breaks, but she broke her fucking back. You know, she worked really hard and she continues to work really hard. And look, you know, she got her own show on HBO. She can do whatever she wants. Um, I'm sad because I love the show and it's I love working on a show that I love mm. and I love working with her and I love everybody else that we worked with. I mean, it's a great group of people and we shared a lot and it's hard. The line of um, intimacy and being professional got a little blurry sometimes and that's always difficult to manage. But I think it made for a really great two seasons and hopefully, you know, I'm, I have no doubt she'll be able to continue that with the third and it's like – that's life, but it. I would be lying if it if I said it didn't affect me. Like, 
Well, it's almost like a, I mean, you, you can tell me, but it almost seems like when we talk about the fame thing and the wanting to be popular and that the fame hole or the approval mm-hmm. hole or whatever, or junior high and mm-hmm. like, it's, you know, all that stuff comes into play. It's like yeah. the, metaphorically speaking, you know, it's sort right. of the same, it's the same thing. It is. You know. It never goes away. Yeah. And that's so depressing. <laughs> and <laughs> I hope that you don't have that many young listeners because. Well, but I think they might, they might, they might be benefiting from hearing it, you know. Right. Um, so talk about like, how did you, how did you get onto the show in the first place? Like, how did you break into television writing? Cause it's like a well guard to, to from my experience. Cause I've done the couch and water bottle tour in this town. Mm-hmm. It's like a well-guarded fortress. Everyone's mm-hmm. like really nice. Mm-hmm. Everyone says, you know, that they like you and they love your stuff. And then you mm-hmm. kind of leave the room feeling great. And then like nothing happens. It's like, right. how did it happen for you? Well, This wasn't some overnight sensation. I've been working as a writer since I'm 21 years old. Um, I haven't been living in L.A. working as a screenwriter, but living in New York, making a living for the most part. Mm. I did have other jobs. Right. But as a writer, editorial, I had my column in Vice, uh, stuff on the Internet, Misbehave. Oh my God! Why do I always forget misbehave? Misbehave. The I edit. I was the editor. <laughs> <laughs> I love misbehave. Um, and <clears throat> Lena, she's a she's a little bit younger than me, and she read your diary, um, and she really loved it. And I really love tiny furniture. And I told her I love tiny furniture. We have mutual friends in common. We were on followed each other on Twitter. Right. And she really loved Dear Diary. And um, my friend Nicole, her name's Nicole Beatty. She's a writer on The Walking Dead. She's an amazing writer. I am obsessed with that fucking show. I have like just watched like the entire catalog of, you know, the, whatever, three seasons. It's yeah. in season three. I haven't now. watched it, but I know people are obsessed and I'm waiting to get into it. Yeah. I don't know what it is, but like I, you know, because I'm not typically like a zombie guy, but I've been totally immersed in that that whole thing you know well i'll be sure to tell nicole because she works really hard on that show and she's like she was like my mentor and she called me and she was like look lena dunham's writing the show on hbo called girls about girls in brooklyn with judd apatow you're you have to work on this show and i was like okay what do i do she was like you need to write a pilot and I said, okay. A pilot of the sh- of No, my just, own just original own pilot. Right. And she said, look, it's not hard. It needs to be this many pages. How many pages? Um, I think for a cable pilot, so, half hour, it's 30. Yeah. It's like a page a minute, but it's a little different because yeah. like the pacing of the dialogue and blah, blah, blah. But it's like either 22 to... Right. I wouldn't, I wouldn't go over 35. Yeah. Um, and I, and, and I wrote this pilot, I wrote it in two weeks. It was hard, but I was really determined because I really wanted to work on the show. And I emailed Lena and I said, look, I'm going to officially submit for your show. I just wanted to let you know. And she was really glad. And, and, you know, I will, she gave me my, my first big break. I mean, 
I met her, and we had an, a great meeting together, and we really bonded. And then I met Jenny, and I met HBO, and I'm pretty sure Lena – I think that Judd was like, you know, hire people who are new because you're new, and it would be nice for you to give people a break. I think, you know, Lena told me that or whatever. But, yeah, like I will forever be grateful to those guys. I mean, there is no other show I could have worked on. There's not no other show. It was the perfect show for me to to work on as my first job. Oh my god! I mean, it, we had, it doesn't get better. No, it it, it was like I, I couldn't believe the opportunity. And so when my friend Nicole told me about it, I was like, I am on it. And I had tunnel vision for about a month, and I worked on this thing, and I was. What was your pilot? Uh, it was really bad. I had no idea what I was doing. It was like a half hour dramedy, which I, th- I don't know. I think it was a drama, but I also wanted it to be funny, but it wasn't. It was like a dark Hannah Montana. <laughs> it was about like this girl who is a YouTube sensation, but no one in her family knew. And no one in her high school knew, but she, and she was a big loser, but. That sounds like a good uh, good concept. Yeah, I mean, it's a it was a very popular show called Hannah Montana, <laughs> <laughs> but it was fine. I you know with that kind of stuff, sometimes they just want to see tone or that you can write something. I wasn't given a script my first year, and. That was fine. You I mean, you know. they didn't assign like an episode to Right, you. right, yeah. Right. So. So how did the, and then just the mechanics of it, because you are you live in Los Angeles. That show films in New York. Yeah, they shoot it in New York. The first season we wrote half in LA, half in New York. And okay. then the second season we pretty much wrote all in LA. Oh, really? Yeah. So I, like everybody just comes out here, you write the season, and then they go back to New York and film it. Yeah. Basically. Um. Yeah, they, we wrote it here, and then they go back to New York, and they shoot it, and they make tons of changes and punch it up and do all kinds of things, but um, I'm just not at that level. You're not, like, on the set? I'm not a producer. No, it's I'm a story editor. It goes, like, staff writer, story editor, executive story editor, producer, co consulting produce i mean there's a whole it's all these weird like tiers and right i mean it's you know writer's guild rules right 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 um so what do you want to do now like do you have an idea i mean and go go ahead and answer that question then i I have another question i want to ask you it just occurred to me (laughs) um Oh, well, to ask me that. Ask me your other question. Uh, I guess the first question, you you alluded earlier when we were talking about um, sobriety mm-hmm. and um, how you're on a spiritual path that you feel like is better for you now. Was that just kind of like a general language, like the path that you're on is better now? Or is there some practice that you have? Or like, are you going to meetings? Are you a Buddhist? Like, do you know what I'm saying? Like, is there mm-hmm. something tangible that you're doing that you feel like is really serving you or is it just like, yeah, no, I work a 12 step program. Okay. So I'd say that that is my spiritual path. Yeah. And I meditate and I pray and I try to be of service to other people, which, you know, I bring with me to my situation at girls and every other place I work, 
maybe I'm just not meant to be of service to the show for right. season three. And that that's fine. Yeah. You know, and if I am meant to be of service one day again, then I will be. And that'll be great, too. You know, it's it's totally cool. Yeah. Well, no, it's like uh, this might sound strange, but uh, I almost envy people in 12 step programs. <laughs> there's one for everyone. If but, you, go. you know, but you know, it's just <laughs> that there's that structure because like religion, uh, I was raised Catholic mm-hmm. and you know, I just have issues with it. It just doesn't speak to me. Yeah. You know, I'd say. but there's something sort of like secular yet structured and like there's real community and real communication. Mm-hmm. And like, it's a, I, like, a, you know, I've been to an AA meeting uh, mm-hmm. as research, you know, mm-hmm. for a book that I thought I was going to write. Mm-hmm. And it was like really powerfully moving. So I remember walking out of that like, holy shit, like that's what church should be like. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, I've also had that same experience walking out of concerts before, Dude, you know, where it's like, totally. oh, this is it. There's music and people are sort of having religious experiences and it felt like authentic. Right. And so do you see what I'm saying? Definitely. It's hard to find it uh, in the more traditional you know, seg- you know, areas of life. And then it's also really hard to generate individually. Yes. You almost I, need like that community in order to, and the structure in order to get to it regularly. Totally. I would not be able to do it on my own. I, I just don't have that kind of discipline, Yeah. but look, you know, there's Al-Anon for friends and family members of alcoholics. I'm sure, you know, one person, at least one person in your life. Oh God. Yeah. It's an amazing program, Al-Anon. I mean, it is the same thing, but it's for people who don't drink and just know people. Or it's, I don't know. I, I always just thought that was, it originally started for the wives of alcoholics. So they could have a meeting place to deal with their alcoholic husbands. Right. Who were suddenly, now they weren't drinking, but they weren't meetings all the time. You know, it's really, it's a very interesting history. Uh, did you see that documentary? Um, I think it's called I Am Bill W. Mm. I think it's on Netflix or iTunes. It's it's really amazing. It's a really... He's the guy who founded AA. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a really um, cool documentary just historically about uh, this group. It's yeah. very interesting. I mean, it's amazing. It's incredible. You should watch this documentary. Okay. Um. You know, maybe I should like, cause I don't take my daughter to church. You know, my parents are like, mm-hmm. I think quietly like, oh my God, he's not, you know, we're not getting her baptized. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's just not in my heart. I can't do it in good faith. Mm-hmm. So maybe I'll just start taking her to Al-Anon once a week. <laughs> totally. Or, you know, there's also like alternative spiritual places. Agape is, I don't know if you know about that, but it's sort of like a non-denominational spiritual temple. Yeah. I haven't heard of that. Yeah, here, here in I mean, LA. Totally. I mean, LA is the place. I was, yeah, I was going to say, like I was talking to, uh, I just talked to um, Bernie Glassman. He's going to be on this show either. He's either before you or after you. It's coming, you know, it's coming up, but he's, uh, he's like a Zen teacher who just did this book with Jeff Bridges. Oh, wow. And he was telling me about, you know, there's like the Zen center. There's a zillion Zen oh, centers in LA, but it's so cool. Yeah. Yeah. If you want to do Buddhist meditation, I mean, there's transcendental meditation, which helps so many people. It costs a shit ton of money. That bugs me. <laughs> I know. That bugs me. It's like three grand to That's learn. It's a little culty. It's a little culty. Like what, what kind, do you have like a kind that you do? 
just like sit quietly and breathe for half an hour? Is that it's I'm actually learning how to work with guided meditations because I have mm-hmm. a hard time just to focus on my breathing. It just I have a really hard time sitting still. I think everyone does. It's but... very hard to meditate. I just I, my goal is five minutes a day. Yeah, I'll, t- I'll take I'll let you know what happens. Yeah, right. This is. <laughs> I go back and forth with it all the time, but I will say that when I, there was one point in my life, there's a time period where I was practicing meditation, I'd say for a month straight and mm-hmm. I did it every day and I was a lot more patient, um, more forgiving. Right. I was just like way chiller. Right. You know? Yeah. I was like, stand, I would stand on long lines and I would be fine. I wouldn't get annoyed as easily as I do now. Yeah. And I noticed that I would, I would have a pause before I would say something stupid. Right. And it gave me the awareness of knowing that. So I thought that was really awesome. It's like, not only am I not annoyed by standing on this really long line to get a burger at Shake Shack, but we just need to chill the fuck out. Yeah. Do you ever notice that about yourself? Like I, <laughs> yeah. I noticed like uh, I've been having, like I'm in a good phase right now where I've been like a little bit, I just kind of looked at myself and I do, you know, it, it's always like, it's never permanent. I haven't gotten it all figured out obviously, but I just recently have just been like, quit being such an asshole and just like, <laughs> relax a little bit. Do you know what I'm saying? Like yeah. it's so easy to get like agitated or road rage or frustrated to the point of like, Throwing a stupid fit over the lamest thing, yeah. you know. So. I mean, it's the culture of our country, and we do what we can. Yeah, but I mean, it's cool that you've you've got something that's working, you know, and like totally. s- some sort of like support and structure. Like, I think, I think that there's sort of a vacuum in our culture, and I think a lot of people could use that, even if they, mm-hmm. you know, in some form. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't know what exactly it is, but I just feel like the structures and the organizations and the systems that exist and have existed uh, traditionally for a long time haven't maybe evolved to match the pace at which the culture itself, the people itself, Mm -hmm. you know, themselves Mm -hmm. have evolved. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? It seems like there's like, it's, there's a disconnect. Yes. You know, and that's how it feels for me. So, well, people can start by going to therapy. I mean, I know that it's not free, um, but just saying things out loud for the first time in your life is the most amazing thing. I mean, that's sort of what this podcast is. I think <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. I mean, or at least like there's some element of it, you know, where it's nice to uh, talk to people, whether it's in person or over the phone, I do both, but mm-hmm. so much of our lives, especially for writers has lived on a screen and it's just after a while it just gets so, um, unreal. You yeah, know, it bogs you down. So it's like, it's nice to hear voices. Yeah. And writers love to talk about themselves. Surprisingly. <laughs> but you know, like, I think people often think of writers as being um, terrible conversationalists. And some of them are like, right. the, you know, it's interesting, too, because like, I'm very moved by writers who in person are um, really hard to understand or seem really ineloquent or fumble 
mm-hmm. you know, re- you know what I'm saying? Yeah. But then you read them and it's mm-hmm. like, holy shit, you know, it's like their only way of communicating. There's I know. Some... Those are the real writers. I know. I know. <laughs> I know. And then there's people like me who can like blabber for yeah. like an hour every day. But... We're just frauds. <laughs> right. <laughs> Don't tell anyone. Um, so are you working on any books? Do you, are you mean TV writing? You're doing, take, you, yeah. you must be, you must be hot and like, not to use like gross language, but that's <laughs> how they phrase it in, you know, in Hollywood. Like you must be taking good meetings and getting some stuff going. I'm working on it. I'm doing a web series with HBO Go. Oh, cool. So that I'm having a lot of fun with. Will you tell HBO Go Ugh. that they should sell subscriptions just online? Ooh, I, that's I don't, a good idea. You can't get it unless you also get HBO for your TV. But right. it's like for web-based people, it's yeah. like, let us sign up because HBO, I mean, it's amazing. The yeah. trove of good stuff, like the documentaries. And right. I would do that in a heartbeat on my computer and they don't let you do that. They're losing money. That's a really good idea. Yeah. I will tell them. And you can also tweet at them. Okay. That's pretty much, I mean, I'll tell them, but I think tweeting is effective, more effective than one would think. Look, I tweeted or said in an interview that like I liked Kind Bars. And kind, What's a Kind Bar? It's like a, a protein bar. Oh, okay, yeah. They're really good. Yeah, yeah. And they're like made with no preservatives and they're tasty and healthy and... It, it's like that – it's pretty 80s. Like remember that movie Summer School when they all have Love to write movie. to their favorite company and they write to the sunglasses – Chainsaw or Dave writes to the sunglasses company and they get free sunglasses. I mean that's kind of what happened. I, I wrote to the – I tweeted about loving kind bars and they sent me kind bars. They sent you like a big box. Tons. Holy shit. It was – it, it works. Very, yeah. It's a kind of, I don't want to beat that joke to death, but it's very kind of them to yeah. do <laughs> Tweet it, man. Okay. Can't hurt. I just, I, yeah, it makes no sense. It's like so perfect. You can have it on your iPad. It does. That's a great idea. People would sign up in a second. So you're doing a web series. Can you tell us what it, what it is? Yeah. It's called 34 and Pregnant. Okay. And um, I'm writing it and starring in it. Oh, wow. You're going to be on camera. Yeah. It's totally weird. I was in the first season of Girls. I don't know. I was, I did not look like how I look in real life. Um, I'm on episode four. I okay. play one of the office workers. I'm early on in my okay. Girls. Yeah. Well, yeah. that's fine. Yeah. You, you'll know when you see it. Um, so you want to act too? I don't. You this don't. was their idea. It'll be fine for, for a web series that I'm writing, but... I, it's not, it's fun, but I'm not like, I don't have like an acting agent. I don't audition. I don't, I don't, I'm not really interested in that. But it's going to happen. I, I don't think so. What if it does? What if it does? We'll see. Yeah. But yeah. So, so, and my boyfriend will play my baby daddy on the show. Is he an actor? He is an actor. He is. Yeah. So... I'll put a lot of fu- I'll cast a lot of funny people and a lot of good actors who can make me look good and funny. So and you're basically I mean you're not you're not playing exactly yourself, but it's like a no. Like- we're totally playing different characters. I mean, she's 34 and works at a hotel and has no ambition other than working at the hotel and is really fine with that and has some good friends and has some shitty friends that she doesn't like but she still is friends with and Andy is this guy who works with her 
and they're kind of just work buddies. And one thing leads to another and she gets pregnant and they kind of have to figure out it's a, it's very derivative of Knocked Up. That's stated in the show. I mean, I love Knocked Up. And it's a great movie. It's a I, I love it so much. So we do talk about that, but you like the characters in the show talk about it. Yeah. So it's like it's like meta. I, I mean, a little. It has to be. Sure. Yeah. Um, it's just one moment, but yeah, it's kind of like you getting having a baby with an acquaintance. You know, I don't know if you've ever worked in an office. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever had a baby with an acquaintance. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know if you've ever worked in an office, but like every time I work in an office, I always get like an office crush. But they're not my crush in real life. It's just kind of like something to look forward to when I go to work. Right. And that's who this guy is to her. She's never seen him outside of work. Right. And she's 34. So she did, also a kid. Do they have sex at work? Yeah. She you had to, fil- and you had to film a sex scene? Well, we haven't shot it yet. Okay. Um, I'm getting scared for you. Like that's I'm not going to be... It's not uh, gratuitous. I know. Nudity. I'm just, I'm just like yeah. act... It's also like, my boyfriend. Right, right, right. That's but, true. Yeah, I'm more scared about... I keep writing all these scenes where I'm crying. And I'm like, <laughs> I got to stop doing this. I don't know how to cry. Right. <laughs> right. I have to change this. Um but yeah, it, I, I'm having a lot of fun writing it. I think it'll be really fun for HBO Go. It's six episodes. and People can watch it online. People can watch it online. Sometimes they have HBO Go shows on demand on TV. And Is it almost like, I mean, tell me if I'm wrong, but is, this, is it almost like they're, it's like a tester? Like they're going to put it out there and then if this thing gets hot online, then they might order up a series? Maybe. Yeah. You never know. HBO is like- a really cool... A network where they are willing to try new different things and but I'm not doing it with that goal in mind I just I'm I was so lucky that they approached me and wanted to do this project with me so I get to you know produce and make this thing. it's got to be a, like a great learning experience exactly like it will be the best learning experience for me the best sample I can have it's like a real, yeah, it's like a, I mean, there's no better real. You can just be like, here's. Totally. Oh, that's so awesome. I'm really excited about that. And that, um, I'm working on now. And then I have some other stuff that I'm working on and I, I'm not going to tell you only because it's so not, and it's, I don't like believe in jinxes or whatever. It's not that it's just so premature that I wouldn't want to come back to this podcast and for somebody to be disappointed or something. I, I don't know. It's just stuff in the it's works. too early. Yeah. yeah I and I'll it. staff for other TV shows. And I worked on MTV's Awkward. Okay. Which is an... I love that show. I mean, I asked to work on that show because it's so great. And so if they have a fourth season, um, you know, hopefully they'll ask me back. We'll see. But yeah, just see... I mean, staffing happens in June, so... I hope that uh, somebody else wants to hire me. <laughs> <laughs> I think they will, for what it's worth. Thanks. <laughs> and uh, it's been great talking with you. Thank you so much for coming over, and congratulations on all your success, and I wish you well going forward. And I wish the same to you, Brad. Thank you so much for having me. I'm flattered and honored that you asked me to come over Aww. and that you read my book. 
It's um, a great book. I'm gonna. I like. I'm you. almost. I'm excited to give it to my daughter when she's a little older. Like or, what age do you think? I think junior high. I mean, it depends. It's different for different kids, but she's pretty verbal, and I think she's pretty sharp. And like, I'm. I don't know. You sort of have a weird sense mm-hmm. of your kid from a young age, and you know, I'm sure it's going to change a little bit. But I, I would suspect that she could read it in junior high at some point. Cool. And I think, I think that. You're, I mean, I'm sure you've heard from young girls who have read it, but I imagine that Dear Diary has got to bring enormous relief and insight to a lot of young girls, right? Yeah. There's something accessible about it, especially when you countenance it against maybe more academic takes on the experience. Do you know what I'm saying? Because totally. that, that stuff can like the Susan Sontags and the yeah. all that stuff is great, but it can get like weighty and difficult to sure. navigate through. Mm-hmm. And you kind of speak to people in the language of people. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. And that's it. I think that my favorite writing is when I feel like someone's talking to me in their own voice. And that's the way that I felt like, you know, when I was reading that book. So, well, That really means a lot to me. Okay. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. Bye. Okay, you guys. That's it. That's Leslie Arfin. Go get her book. It's called Dear Diary. It's really great. It's fun to read. And uh, not all books are fun to read. Her book, it's fun to read. You can find her online at lesliearfin.com. She's on the Facebook. And you can follow her on Twitter at Leslie Arfin. Thanks to Kill Rockstars, as always, for all the great music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. Uh, I should add that uh, the song that plays when I'm uh, reading my tweets is not from Kill Rockstars. That is uh, Brian Eno and Harold Budd, I believe, and the song is called The Silver Ball. The Silver Ball. So go download that from iTunes and throw Brian Eno some more money. Uh, And hey, don't forget to get the app, the official Other People app. It's free. It is available for your iPhone, your iPad, your iPod Touch, or your Android device. New shows automatically appear. On the app, as if by magic, you can download episodes to listen to offline. You can access all the premium content, the full archives, uh, the whole deal. So please do check that out. Uh, What's happening? I'm looking out my window right now, uh, over to my right, over to my right, and it is gorgeous outside. Uh, I can see palm trees. I can see bamboo swaying gently in the breeze. I can see a strange 1970s-era tenement. And I want to be out there. I want to go outside. I want to close my eyes. I want to let the sun shine on my face. I want to bask in the glory of nature. And uh, you know what? I forgot to respond at the top of the show to the whole drug issue raised by a listener. Uh, My purported pandering to druggies. I believe that was how it was phrased. That I pander. And, you know, I don't know what to say other than to tell you that everything you hear on this show is how I feel. It's how I really feel, and I'm, I'm you know, I'm, I'm obviously working these things through uh, in real time, just like anybody. And drugs uh, are a gray area for me. You know, there's a lot of bad. You just heard me talk about it with Leslie. There's, you know, there's a lot of bad, a lot of destructive qualities, a lot of sad stories. But there's a there's also some good, a lot of great art produced, a lot of fun times, and there are some people who can use drugs recreationally, no problem, and there are other people who can't. Uh, as far as I can tell, but uh, regardless, it's a big issue, and it's certainly a big issue within the writing and creative community, and uh, that's why I think I talk about it, because it's a part of this, and it's a part of my life, uh, not in the sense that I'm out there like using a lot of drugs or anything, but just that uh, some people I know do. I certainly see it online as people chatter and so on and so forth, so maybe that 
clarifies things. Maybe that confuses things. I don't know. Please remember that Sylvia Plath was born on Dylan Thomas's 18th birthday and that Ronald Reagan was a clandestine informer for the FBI during its investigation of so-called left-wing influences in Hollywood in the 1940s. That is it for now. I'll be back again soon uh, in just a couple of days with another episode. Uh, I've got some good ones coming up. And uh, have you subscribed to the show on iTunes? What did I forget to say? Did I, did I forget to say something? Thank you for listening. I appreciate it. I appreciate you. I am grateful for your presence. Your presence is present enough. You give me a, a gratitude. Should I just? Uh, yeah. <laughs>